I was just going to ask, uh, in relationship to the resurrection, uh, where would you date like Daniel and the idea coming out of Second Temple period, uh, the the idea of what you mentioned early on in the podcast with the resurrection? Yeah, Daniel's from the Maccabean period. So the idea of resurrection uh, is that in Second Temple period, where is that? Where are you dating? Where does that come into play? So, uh, well, it depends on what you mean. So. The, I don't mean to be picky or technical with the question because it's a good question, but I, it depends on what you mean by resurrection beliefs. Cause that presumes what? like a, a, like one kind of belief that is the resurrection. So no, I was just talking about how you tied Paul and Daniel and this idea of the resurrection. And then oh, I was wondering. I, so, so specifically wondering. astral afterlife kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Where does that fall in? Just so quickly. That, Cause I know Zechariah has some questions. Yeah, so that my quick answer is, I, I'm. Some might say I'm idiosyncratic in my belief on this. Uh, some A and E people, um, ancient Near Eastern scholars, might say this, but I know a host of them that take my view as well. That there's probably astral afterlife stuff as early as the Torah is. Um, now, not I, I. I admit that a lot of scholars don't agree with that, but. The problem is when you're reading Egyptian literature and Canaanite literature and stuff that's centuries older than Torah, centuries older, they have some of the same tropes that are used about joining the fathers and uh, and all that kind of thing. Those are interpreted as heavenly ascents. And so for later Jews to read that back into the text, quote unquote, reading it back into it, may not have been reading that much into it. I mean... When, when I started getting into pyramid texts and stuff in my master's thesis, I was like, holy crap, this stuff is everywhere. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just common ancient Mediterranean tropes about rulers becoming gods, you know? So, like, um, I would be... So the, the short answer is I would be incredibly surprised if there wasn't some sort of heavenly ascent traditions already assumed in, like... Uh, Exodus or Genesis or something like that. Mm. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Turn it over to Hound. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, uh, so one one thing which might be a little bit controversial to like touch on, but like I noticed this like back in the old podcast uh, days, and even when I was rereading this article. So, and I was I was interested in it at the time, so I kind of wanted to get some of your take on it, which is. Okay, you bring up the the Anastasis of Michael. What do we do with Michael? Because, yeah. you know, is is he a messianic figure? Yeah. Is he like a typo? Is he a typology? Is he his own thing? Is he Christ? What's up with Michael? Oh. Yes, to all of those. So, um, <laughs> this, so no, this is a really good question. Um, this is a really important question for First Corinthians fifteen. Uh huh. So, because. If you've read the chapter, um, then you you see how this how the linking works between these like matrix of texts because um, the the general narrative of and this is I believe the language I use there is that you have a plenipotentiary figure you know which is like a sort of technical term for like these mediators that in Jewish tradition where you have like a uh, and the plenipotentiary is like the full realization or the full authority of or like a manifestation of or a representative of the deity 
that there's those figures in the heavens. Sometimes in some traditions, it's Michael, the chief angel, the chief prince. In some traditions, it's Melchizedek, the chief high priest, angelic figure of heaven. Um, in some, it's like Noah comes out as an angel with face shine. <laughs> <laughs> in some, it's uh, Moses is, uh, is called God. Well, he's already called God in, in Exodus. Um, but uh, God literally says, I'm going to make you a God to Pharaoh. And Aaron's not going to be my not going to be my prophet. He says he's going to be your prophet. So, yeah. so not only really Moses made like God, Moses has a prophet. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I remember reading some scholarship. I think it was uh, Fletcher Lewis who he's talking yeah, about. Yeah. He saw the face of God, but that was Moses. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I'm 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 good friends with Crispin actually. Um. So he uh. Yeah, so he's got some very interesting stuff. What Zachariah is bringing up, this scholar, Crispin Fletcher Louis, he he um, he traces the background of what we would some a lot of us call angelomorphic Christology um, in, in sort of Christian origins. So this idea that Christ, the Christ figure is this chief angelic figure, you know that the high, you know Heiser will sometimes say the second Yahweh or whatever, right? So like. This is very common in Jewish apocalyptic tradition, this, this figure. Sometimes he's called Yahowel, you know, uh, like, like Gabriel or Mikael. You have Yahowel, who's like Yahweh's angel, the chief one. You know, in the Old Testament, you have the angel of Yahweh. Um, but there's, there's figures that, that bear that pers personage or, or take on that role um, of that chief mediator. But there's sort of a lot of different examples of that. In the Old Testament and in Second Temple, so it's very. I I'm one that thinks that this category should, is a very general category of a chief mediatorial figure um, that, uh, for the apocalypticist, sometimes might be Michael, sometimes it's Melchizedek. Um, in this case, it's Jesus. So he's he fits that role, that function. So. It's not like, well, if Jesus equals Michael or Jesus equals <laughs> Melchizedek, like, well, maybe. I mean, I definitely think the Melchizedek and Michael traditions are informing what Paul's saying here. Um, so, yes, he's fitting that role. But the, you have to understand before people like flip out all the like Orthodox, like post-Nicene folks flip, um, because a lot of angelomorphic Christology is deemed heresy later that Christ isn't an angel you know, he's not a created being, blah, blah, blah. Angels are created beings. Um, it's not so clear in the early church before orthodoxy. Um, it's not so clear because there's constant debate in the fathers about this, about is Christ Michael? Is Christ the angel of Yahweh? No, he's definitely the angel of Yahweh. Here he is. Here's all the Christophanies, you know. Um, here's, and so, well, if he's an angel, then he's created. Well, no, no, he's not created. He's an angel of the presence. So this uh, the idea between the Holy Spirit and an angel sometimes get conflated or mixed up. So, like, is the Holy Spirit the chief angel? You know? Or is the Spirit something else? You know? So these things get mixed up. Before the Holy Spirit part um, uh, makes it into the creed the way we have it, you have earlier authors who are saying, like Justin Martyr. You brought up Justin Martyr. Mm -hmm. Justin Martyr's a great example. Yeah. It's, I think it's his first apology. Uh, it's either in his first apology or Dialogue with Trifle. I don't remember which one. Uh, but I can get you the reference later if you want it. But he says that that we worship, speaking of the Christians, over and against you know whoever is either the Greek or Trifo the Jew. I don't remember. 
he says, we Christians, we worship or venerate or, you know, pay obeisance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Angels. <laughs> so, so because early on, this spirit and the angel was interchangeable often. I mean, you see this in Scripture. I mean, you don't, you can just go to Acts and you find this, you know. The Sadducees you don't believe in spirits and angels, you know. Um, and so if it's somebody's spirit, it's his angel, you know. It's like, so yeah. th these are really interchangeable language. And so one time in Enoch, for example, only once, um, the angels are actually called spirits. Um, but in the, the Qumran scrolls, it's all over the place. So, yeah. so it's, it's very common to, to, to mix these up. So with Christology, you know, it takes centuries to iron this stuff out. Hmm. Like, is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is this guy spirit? Is this guy angel? You know, it's tough. It's not easy to sift through this material. Right. Right. You said earlier about Luke and Paul, maybe it's okay that they don't agree. Is mm -hmm. that what Hurtado does? Does he try to make everything fit a certain way and then he can't understand Fletcher Lewis? I mean, what's going on with Hurtado? I don't know. Yeah. That's, wow, that's interesting. What all have you read of Hurtado? <laughs> well, I just uh, initially uh, have been digging in because I was okay. uh, Fletcher Lewis. And then I know the audience, you know, like you said, there's a lot of fundamentals in it. They catch Fletcher Lewis, and then they get, well, here's Otato. You know, he says, you know, that this is all yeah. a bunch of bunk. Well, you know, I, and, I doubt any fundamentalist know either one of those guys. <laughs> I, I, I can guarantee oh, again. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, I agree. But coming from that same background you did as a Protestant, you know, I see pushback from Hurtado, and I'm like, I'm oh, more good. open to Fletcher Lewis. So I'm wondering, no, you know. Yeah, no, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up Hurtado. I was almost his doctoral student. Um, hmm. Instead of going to Edinburgh, I came to Marquette because I was going to do like Elijah Christology stuff in, in Luke with him. He actually bought me a Guinness at SBL, which is like, <laughs> the, the, what, the, that was just an amazing moment with that man. Like he's such a kind scholar, but man, he was a bulldog. He would go <laughs> for the jugular every time. He did not want to debate with that guy. Um, but like, so I still debated with him though. <laughs> I, I had to, I had to try it, you know, it's like, so I, I debated him on the first Corinthians 8 passage because he'll, he'll make the claim that, and this is a famous sort of Hurtado claim in the early Christology sort of debates is that Hurtado and Wright and Richard Baucom and, and others and Fletcher Louis with them on this too. I, I disagree with all of them, but, um, it, they, they, they all say that in 1 Corinthians 8, what you have is the, the one God and one Lord thing, which Paul's clearly referencing the Shema there. He's clearly referencing Deuteronomy 6. So what Paul's doing in their view, Hurtado is just one of, the, one of these guys that holds this view. They would say that, because this is in the answer to your question too, um, is they would say that there's a radical evolution that happens in Jewish Christology here in Paul, where you have Jesus included as the Lord in the Shema. So in Greek, when you say, hmm. um, you know, here of Israel, the Lord, hmm. your God, is one, he, he's saying there's Lord and God. So the God figure is the Father, and then the Lord insert Jesus. Huh. And that's what Hurtado is saying happening with, with Paul. That Paul literally inserted Jesus into the Shema. So I completely disagree with this view. I, I think this view is wrong. 
Um, uh, I have an article I, I'm working up on this actually um, that, uh, that that argues that the 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 context in in this argument of gods and lords, which these terms are used for gods. One of Hurtado's points: uh, God and Lord are used interchangeably all the time in the Greek world. So you call gods lords all the time. So so they're both divine figures. I agree with that. But so are every other ancient Mediterranean king are all divine figures. So what I think is worship, what I think is in view here um, in 1 Corinthians 8, that 4 and 5, that passage, is you have one God and one Lord. So you have the deity in the heavens, and you have the king that corresponds to him over the nations. So gods and lords, gods and lords. So you have you know, the God of Israel and, and his, his king, his Messiah, Jesus, the God and the Lord. And, and for Jesus to be included as the Davidic son, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, as, as the rightful uh, Messiah and inheritor of the kingship of Israel and thus the world, apocalyptically for Paul, that's easy to get divine kingship out of that. Because if you read the Old Testament at all, the, the King David is a divine figure. Yeah. In Psalm 45, he's called a deity. He's called Elohim. And where Elohim says to Elohim, the king, you know, giving him his rule, his power. So, and that's the passage that Hebrews 1 uses for Jesus as well. He so are we replacing in deification, theosis, are we replacing the gods uh, in Paul's view necessarily? Like in the, when I read the Old Testament, I see the ancient Near East, how they describe gods and then how the Bible describes humans. So tying what you said about Adam in Genesis 3 and, and the image and then the rebellion in Genesis 6 and then Genesis 11 and the 70, and, and it's a both and, but we're placing, you know, so. <laughs> Give me an entire biblical theology in five minutes, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what I'm just saying, you know, because Hurtado is, is wow. reserved, you know, he's so reserved because he's afraid of crossing. I know, I appreciate right. that about him. This is why I think he's among the, the I would say Hurtado's a moderate. Okay, so Hurtado is a moderate in the early Christology club, uh, but he's one of the founders. They have a they have like a little club. They literally made mugs. I mean, like <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like this is a thing in like Christian scholarship where, like especially evangelicals, what mainly just evangelicals, they want to they, they try to like write early Christology books to try to get in what what Hurtado calls the EHCC, the early high Christology club. So. <laughs> If you go, so you know that Jesus was divine from the very beginning. Um, so if you go, I'm serious. This is a thing. If you go, I'm giving y'all insider information right now. <laughs> if you go to Hurtado's big old, if you go to Hurtado's big old tome, um, Lord Jesus Christ on earliest devotion to Jesus or whatever. Um, if you go to that book, his big old tome, and go to the dedication, you'll see the dedication, and it says to EHCC, and to Highland Irrigation. And you're like, what? And so what he's referring to there, EHCC, is the Early High Christology Club. This was like him, um, Casey Newman, um, Maurice Casey. Uh, I don't know if Richard Bachman was in it or not. Um, and like a couple others. Anyways, oh, James Dunn. Um, who else? There was like a group of them that, that, that would meet, and you got a mug if you like were deemed worthy. 
<laughs> so Hurtado would go in, in, in a, in, to SBL each year to sign biblical literature, and they'd room with Casey Newman um, and, and uh, another early Christology scholar um, was the editor of Baylor. I don't know where he's, where he's at now. Um, but um, he, they, they would uh, have like fine scotch together and talk. And, you know, in the room, they would bring scotches and, and they would drink drink scotch together and talk about this stuff. And so they call it Highland Irrigation, was what they're doing when they, when they go to drink scotch together. So, like, I love it. So I'm like, Highland Irrigation, here, here. There you um, go. <laughs> so, like, that, that's the thing. They're, they're like a clique. And so, you know, and James Dunn and, 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 uh, and Maurice Casey and stuff would push back, they, but they'd all hang out together. Um, so, you know, they're like, well, it's not initially fully divine like we would think now. You know, that's sort of an evolution. And, and like Hurtado, even though he's more reserved, will say, no, he is fully divine right from the get-go. You know, um, So I appreciate Hurtado's um, nuance and care when it comes to these issues. But I still think he doesn't go far enough with some of the mediatorial traditions. Now, that's coming from a place of yeah. utmost respect and honor uh, of him as a scholar because I that's who I cut my teeth on. I mean, I cut my teeth on Wright and Hurtado and Bauckham and all these people, but, you know, what they say is, like, the, the student always goes for the jugular of their mentor, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, thank you for that. I feel that. So thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, even touching on something uh, you responded earlier to Keith, where there's a sort of this anachronism that always pops up, and I think it's very easy to easy to do. Where we uh, we we in the modern world we have this uh, separation of church and state idea, right? And right. that's just not there in the ancient world. You don't you don't separate the two. And I mean, I first got into this just with with learning stuff from Heiser, right? And yeah. I I yeah, I cut my teeth on like where he goes and John goes like Psalm eighty two stuff. Yeah. But like later on, I'm thinking, wait a second, I'm seeing in this, uh, in the rabbinic stuff, you there's this blurred lines between like the Sanhedrin and the, uh, the the seventy angelic yeah. Sanhedrin, right? Oh, and I'm yeah. like, wait That's a good. second, wait a second, like you don't have to cut the elders out of this. <laughs> yeah, no. that, that's that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the Sanhedrin. I have a piece on the Sanhedrin I'm working on too. Oh, um, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, yeah because I think there's some really interesting stuff that Luke Acts is doing with like counter Sanhedrin stuff, hmm. um, where he oh yeah where, Acts especially yeah you see all that yeah. all that uh, council imagery and then you see like yeah. the Christian version of Sanhedrin. Yeah, me and me and a Marquette buddy who both were in Orlov's apocalyptic lit uh, courses are like co-writing an article on on the martyrdom of Stephen and Sanhedrin tradition. Uh, and so it's going to be freaking good, man. Like, it's, it's like, I think it'll blow some people away when they see it. But We're getting, um, we're getting all these glimpses into your future projects. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah I'm going to all kinds of things out. I didn't <laughs> really you're enjoying this. Here. Really enjoying yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. So is there a problem with the, the idea of the Sanhedrin, like it's, you know, the both end? in John 10, and the same thing with Hurtado's reservation, but I, I appreciate Hurtado, but even Heiser, 
Is there a problem with uh, the idea of the deification and, and going away from, well, Psalm 82 cannot refer to elders or Psalm 82 or John 10 cannot be this because. So, I'm, yeah, that's I'm curious. It's the same for me getting into it uh, initially. I'm seeing this dichotomy that they want to keep these two things separate somehow. And to me, I, am I complete? Uh, well, the, like the Sanhedrin in John 10, you know, the idea that it cannot be, it cannot be, uh, well, what you said, divinized kings. It cannot be because of Genesis 6. It cannot be representing humans. It can only be the gods. Yeah. And it's the, this, this line that we don't want to cross because we're afraid, like Fletcher Lewis seems to go a little bit further than Hurtado. And, mm -hmm. and her title's like, I don't want to cross that line because I want to keep my Christology. And yeah. I'm wondering, Heiser, is he doing the same thing? He doesn't want to cross the line because, yes. you know, we, we, you know, so what's your yeah take on that? No, it, it, okay, so there's a part of that where I think you got to the heart of it, the issue. Um, and the, the part that I think you, like, sort of put the needle right in the heart of the issue was, is someone's Christology being at stake. Hmm. So with, with the, the moment... So any sort of historical reconstruction, so um, Hurtado is very careful about this, um, yet people still see through it, um, is, is, or so to speak, so to speak, that's a negative caricature, I'm sorry, but like from certain scholars' perspectives, they see through it, but, but, um, but from his perspective, and I actually argued this um, against a professor one time, was was that, that was trying to use Hurtado to say, oh, this is like proto-Trinitarianism. See, he's talking about Binitarianism. And then you have the spirit's relation there that gets added, you know, and, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Hurtado actually said, and I literally, over Guinness, he told me this. Like, <laughs> like, I'm not making this up. Like, the reason why in his early literature, in Hurtado's early books, and if you, you can check the de you can check the dates on this stuff, in his early stuff, he always used Binitarian, that there's this pattern to early Christian devotion where Jesus is being included in the worship of God, like where he's invoked in prayer like God is. He's invoked in like creedal statements, like pre-Pauline stuff, like Romans 1, 3, and 4, and Colossians, and that 1 Corinthians 8 and stuff, that already, which is predates Paul. Most scholars think those passages are drawn on that Paul's using rhetorically to win an argument because people already believe them. So, so in other words, you can date some of those creedal formulae to like probably within 10, 15 years of Jesus' death. So, it, and, that's, and that's actually, it's a conservative estimate, you know. But nevertheless, it's within the first generation. They're already saying these things about the divine Christ. The question is, that he kept using the term Binitarian, and what like sort of secular historians of like early Judaism and Christianity were saying like real historical critics and scholars, they're like, what are you, he's just doing apologetics. He's just doing pro-Trinitarianism. He's just trying to develop a historical story that buttresses later orthodoxy. This, we can't take this scholarship seriously. And he was receiving a lot of pushback on that. And his response was, in his later literature, was he always used the term dyadic after that. Hmm. He would never use the term binitarian after that. Because... He, he got to the point where he's like, I'm sick of people calling me out for just saying Binitarian. It's not proto-Trinitarianism. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying the earliest Jesus followers are proto-Trinitarian. And so that, you know, frustrated my conservative friends 
<laughs> and then uh, some of the liberal friends were like, ah, we don't believe him, you know? So it's like, Hurtado is sort of like, that's why I say he's a moderate, you know? Hmm. As a his, When Hurtado's wearing his historian hat, he's not poo-pooing orthodoxy, but he's saying, look, in the earliest formulations, it's not what we get in Nicaea. It's not what we get there. It gets there. It's not saying it's like, it's not saying Nicaean formulations are true or not. That's not what he's doing. He's limiting himself to sort of a methodological naturalism as a historian. He's just saying, look, this is what we can say, the limits of what we can say through contemporary historical method, period. That's it. So he takes a very middle-of-the-road position. But I think the deck is stacked because I do think it is sort of proto-orthodoxy what they're doing because the people that latch on to this stuff are the ones that are trying to use historical critical books to argue for orthodoxy. Hmm. So Hurtado and Bauckham have become go-tos in that. Now Crispin Fletcher Louis up in that like realm too now. Um, so I, I'm a little bit to the left of them, I think, um, but I cut my teeth on them. You know? So bringing, bringing up something earlier, because like I was kind of, when you said something and you said, I, I, let me finish, uh, Zach. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You, you mentioned, uh, and this gets back to, this uh, leads into, uh, ties into the Christian Fletcher Lewis thing. But you were, you were speaking of the, mm -hmm. uh, the idol stuff in uh, Paul. And when I was reading that in my uh, right ahead of this, uh, this recording, I was like, oh, wait, I never, I never noticed that before because you pulled up that imagery. And I'm like, so I've read like both in uh, uh, Crispin Fletcher Lewis because he does, he goes into like this uh, uh, Adam as idol stuff in Second Temple yeah, Judaism, yeah. right? Life of Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, we've uh, talked about Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then also with, I think, I think it might be McDowell now, but when I read it, it was like Catherine Becker, like, and she has this whole whole thing on uh, humanity as idol and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, <laughs> so just like just for our listeners, this isn't just Paul doing something on the side. It's uh, he's drawing on this much wider thing of humanity as idol, right? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, this is. Um, what I hope to point out, and again, someone is going to have to read the book chapter to get the whole argument, but uh, what I just sort of touched on is, is yes, it, what you said is part of a larger discourse on what does it mean for humanity or Adam in particular or Israel to be an idol of God, yeah. you know, um, because everyone loves in Mago Day an image of God, but it really just means an idol. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, and, and, but, the, but the thing is, that, that, that will break a lot of, like, dissonance, I think, when you get that, because it makes sense, the idol polemics, then. It makes sense why um, Israel is so aniconic in their worship. Now, the critical historians, though, um, will say there's a lot of sociological reasons why this is, and preserving tribal cults and all this kind of stuff, but, but like... Um, but, but the theology behind it, I think, that's used to justify whatever the social circumstances were, um, is, is going back to that idea of we, this is why we don't make images, is because we believe that humans are. You know, we believe that we are. You know, we believe that's what happened to us. We were made in the image, you know. And, um, hmm. yeah, 
So if, if you, so a good way to do this, a good way to approach this topic is yes, do the second temple literature, but you need to know, I think some Hebrew Bible staple stuff first before you yeah. get into that, because the, all the second temple stuff is interacting with the text. They're not just like making stuff up. So yeah. uh, sometimes they are, but like, <laughs> but most of the time they're, but most of the time they're interacting, they're seeing things in these texts. So like when you have, you mentioned the life of Adam and Eve. Uh, a lot of listeners probably have never heard this text before. It's not in the Bible, <laughs> but it was very important to early Christians and early Jews because we have we have versions of this text preserved in Latin and Greek, mm -hmm. and in in later uh, uh, fragmentary, but but then in later traditions as well, um, later languages have uh, translated uh, sort of on the fringe of the Eastern Church, but but. Um, the fringes of the Eastern Church preserve all the most interesting ancient Jewish stuff. <laughs> um, uh, so it's it's true. It's it's this. It's very true. I mean, oh yeah. Like you, when you look at Ethiopian canons and Syriac I, canons, I, I, I knew those. That's what you're talking about. Preserve all the ancient weird stuff, you know. Um, Book so, of Ena, so, Discal yeah, Discalia, Jubilees, yeah, yep. exactly. All this stuff. <laughs> um, so so uh, where was I going with that? Uh, I lost my train of thought. I don't know, but I loved it. <laughs> uh, I was somewhere with that. Is it? Oh, oh, the life of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yes. So, life of Adam and Eve, that text, um, real popular in early Christianity. This is life of Adam and Eve is where we get a lot of our theology of Satan. It's not really from the Bible, and a lot of a lot of people who do Bible in like Bible college or seminary or something, or read some biblical studies books, they think that Satan our Satan theology or our etiology, our sort of dominant Western post-Augustinian origin of evil stuff comes from the Bible. Well, it comes from later amalgamations of traditions that are interpreting the Bible, but not necessarily the Bible itself. And that Satan is problematic and I'd have to tease out. But what I mean by that is when you encounter a text like Life of Adam and Eve, Life of Adam and Eve is this pseudepigraphal text that, that describes the entire fall narrative, where we get the fall from. Um, and because it's not really a big story in Genesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they just, you know, Kinda there's happened. a curse and then you're on to Cain and Abel. So, um, <laughs> but, but Adam and Eve, the life of Adam and Eve, or the Vida in Latin, is this really long epic tale of the fall, where Adam and Eve, you know, they, when they sin and they, uh, they listen to Satan, there's this whole tale about Satan being one of the angels, you know, the one of the most glorious in heaven and all this. That's not in Genesis, but in Life of Adam and Eve it is. So Satan's up there, and this text generally is dated from like, well, we don't really know for sure, like 1st century BCE to like 2nd or 3rd century CE. We don't really know for sure where the original is, but that's sort of the span of when it could be. So around the origins of Christianity, basically. So they, they would, and this is a very popular tale, apparently, where Satan, one of his angels, was mad and, and gets a lot of the other angels mad because God, through, I think, Michael, instruct Michael or his angel or something, has Michael instruct all the other hosts of heaven to bow and worship the image and form of God, Adam. So all the hosts of heaven is literally supposed to worship Adam. <laughs> and so 
this Satan figure and these other angels are like, oh, this is BS. Like, <laughs> like, like we were made first. This is what the Satan figure says. Like, I was made first. You know, I'm more glorious than he. I predated him. Why should I worship him? Blah, blah, blah. And all the other angels, some of the other angels would be like, yeah, F that guy, you know? And so it's like, um, so they, they uh, because of their jealousy, fall, you know? Yep. They're banished because they wouldn't worship Adam. Now, how fascinating is that? That early Christians apparently liked this text. Mm-hmm. Like, just, they, they thought that, oh, yeah, Satan wouldn't worship Adam, so that's what caused the fall. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve so that they would lose their glory, you know? And they do. And so this is a very interesting early Christian, by the way, oh, yeah. which is also early Jewish, take on what, why the fall happened. And... Very fascinating text. Well, it still plays. Well, it still even, plays heavily in pop culture today. So even, uh, <laughs> even uh, like just to build on that, like I think you're not even going how far how popular it is because not just Christians yeah. were influenced by this text, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. We have explicit, uh, like ex- a very explicit reference to this, even in Islam, right? We see like, oh yeah, yes, we, yeah. we see the story of how. Uh, Iblis does not uh, bow down to Adam, right? Right. Yep, that's right. Yep. It's coming from that tradition. That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, there's actually yeah. a lot of early Christian Jewish tradition in the in the Quran, because that's what they're that's oh. what Muhammad's reading. He's reading all the Jewish and Christian stuff. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, because he's around yet, around six hundred AD. Trying to say what I was trying to say earlier. Yet this text is saying that they should bow down to Adam, and then yet. The idea that we come from as Protestants is that in Christology, we're trying to protect that Christology that only Christ can be worshipped. And yet in the life of Adam and Eve, you're commanded to worship the Adam. Exactly. And that's what I think Fletcher Lewis says. I was pulling that. And then I felt like that Hurtado was trying to come against that or, you know, I didn't know. And that's why I was. Yeah. Yeah. That intuition is good that that you see the differentiation between them because. Hurtado is pushing back against that because Hurtado and Bakum and them have this sort of unbreachable gap between creator and created. So, like, you can't breach that line. They would say early Jewish monotheism, Hurtado will call it. They'll say it's not monotheism in the modern sense. That's not what we mean. Stop saying that. But early Jewish monotheism has that divide clear between creature and creator. So you can never get... Jesus in the creature category, because then it wouldn't be monotheism anymore. It's like breaching, you know. So he thinks there's an evolution in early Jewish monotheism to include Jesus in the identity of Yahweh or something like that. And so, um, but I think Christian Fletcher Louis, generally speaking, that sort of trajectory of thought about like angels and humans being venerated. And, and another scholar who's on that track who I really like is William Horbury um, of Cambridge. Uh, Horbury is brilliant. I mean, his his a uh, wow man. His stuff is good. Um, his his book uh, on uh, what, what's it called? Uh, shoot, my mind just went blank. Jewish. Uh, oh, oh uh, the cult of messianism, or the cult uh, something something about the cult of messianism. Okay. That the book is so good. Like so, basically, he he talks about how um, you know king king veneration and king worship was something normative 
in ancient Israel. Hmm. Um, now, th that seems to be idiosyncratic amongst Christian scholars, obvious for obvious reasons. Um, but a lot of historical critics are like, yeah, that, that's right. You know, yeah, we have no problem with that. So, so again, it, it depends on where you land, you know. If you're trying to do, like, etiological defense of orthodoxy or something, you're, you're going to land more with Hurtado is, among the historical critics. Because yeah. he is a legitimate historical critic of historical critics. I mean, he's a great scholar, just unbelievable scholar. And a scholar of the manuscript tradition, too. I mean, he's not just a traditions history guy. He's a text critic. I mean, he could give you the entire manuscript tradition history of the New Testament. If you sat down. <laughs> so, nice. I'm, no joke. Yeah. I mean, That's he was, awesome. He was, okay. he was something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I it's think... obvious we want to hold the line between creature and creator, but, you know, I just see this, like, even in the John 10 thing, where you, you cannot be humans or cannot be the elders. Yeah, I think We're still that... trying to... It's still kind of that same thing, right? You know, it's it's we're trying to avoid something there. When we can't yeah. we do a both and? Can't we go ahead? Yeah. I, I think this is like a larger motif of like our entire conversation is it's this dichotomy between the heavenly and the earthly, right? Right. And like uh, that's kind of like the pushback from like uh, N.T. Wright. He's like, but it has to be the earthly, and. Uh, <laughs> But we kind of have to say, okay, where's the, how do we, how do we kind of uh, mesh these? Yeah. We pause right there. We do a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Gumby here from Bible Over Brews. Are you looking to get some editing done in your podcast? Maybe you don't have the hours or time it takes to edit your content, but you still need to get it done. Maybe you need a customized track or a song for your podcast or your next project without having to worry about copyright issues. Well, look no further than soulworkmusic.com, where this footwork is done for you. I'll get that editing post-production work done right for you, or create you that customized song that fits your project or podcast to help support your life's work. If this sounds like what you need, reach out to me at soulworkmusic.com. Again, at soulworkmusic.com. And remember, there's nothing taboo over brew. I don't think that particular thing... I mean, that's a very particular conversation about the nature of the resurrection body. Yeah. I don't think that's meshable. Um, I think his view is just wrong, period. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, full stop. But when it comes to Christology, yes, this, this is complicated because both are So both rabbinic Judaism, um, uh, what, so what we anachronistically call rabbinic, what will become rabbinic Judaism after, Christen, after Christianity starts, and early Christianity, we both have traditions that blur the lines between humans and God that, that are extant, that still exist. And they've always wrestled with them. Yeah. Both well, Jews and Christians. That so, you'll yeah, find I, wrestling with them. I think what's happening with them is he's like very much a reactionary to like uh, sort of these extreme views of just going to heaven without any earthly interaction I, with that. And he goes so far to the earthly realm that he just can't can't uh, can't cross cross over and say, "Hey, there's there's this heavily there's this angelomorphic deification stuff going on, yeah. right?" Yeah. And, yes, you're right. But the the reason why I think, and it's clear because I mean, he said it, he said it hundreds of times is that yeah. you you have if you have the this is like sort of his reasoning, not mine. I'm saying his reasoning is. 
uh, and he said this in practical teaching and preaching and stuff, he'll say that you, you can't have some sort of go to heaven when you die stuff because, first of all, that's not what Paul's talking about, but because um, it lets you sort of just say, all right, peace out, earth. We don't need to care for the earth. You know, this, you can just trash it. You can do whatever. You don't need to recycle. You need to be like carried about environment or anything like that because we're just out of here. You know, this thing's all going to burn up. It's toast. Peace. We don't care. So it's like it goes against environmental ethics. It goes against like caring for creation, you know, creation care, that kind of stuff. So that's why that theology is important for him to preserve as well. So yeah. there's, there's these agendas there that are good ethical agendas and good theology about caring for creation and all that and not polluting the earth and not just raping the earth. All that the prophets talk about incessantly, you know. Um, and apostles, but uh, <laughs> they're all about that. But what, but what the, the problem with that is, is the assumption that underlies it is that it's either one of the other. The assumption is that, well, going to heaven means like some far off land in the sky, platonic. not a, yeah, the platonic, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but every the thing that's consistent in. Uh, all through ancient Mediterranean thought is that the up there is literally cosmologically and spatially up there and they're the highest tier on the cosmos and they rule everything down here. Right. So yep. if stuff isn't going well here, it's because they're not ruling right, which is exactly what Psalm 82 says. Yeah. Psalm 82 says that the nations and stuff aren't ruling rightly, they're not doing justice in the world. Mm -hmm. So if heaven's some far-off space away from the earth, why do they care that the gods aren't doing justice down here? So again, the gods are supposed to maintain justice and order of the creation and of the people under the heavens. So this is a one cosmos. This isn't a radical dualism where the heaven's some other dimension not associated with this one. So... Um, yeah, and I'm, even in even in Psalm 82, I don't think there is that sharp of a divide between the divine and human rulers, right? Because right. we see the same yeah. language like applied to uh, Jewish leadership el elsewhere, right? Uh, okay. God stands among His council, but now it's like the the Jewish people are like, you have you have done this, yeah. right? And you can even read Psalm 82 that way, where the gods via their earthly kings are yeah. acting unjustly, right? Which That's be, a popular rabbinic interpretation. Which, it, which should be very much a uh, a push for us now because we're now sort of occupying that sort of liminal realm between like the divine being and like the earthly king as Christians, right? Where now the sons of God, how do we, how do we in, incorporate that justice around us, right? That is a Christian view, yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. the early the early Christians, the earliest like patristics, are using these Jewish traditions to talk about theosis, to talk about deification. They're talking yeah. about like, yeah, we're going to be made divine. We're going to take up rule, and it'll be in the likeness of God. And it starts being differentiated because monotheism becomes well. I mean, monotheism becomes a thing like it wasn't before, in a way, in a way. I mean, they still, uh, even the early fathers acknowledged the reality of the gods. So it's just, yeah, I mean, it's so funny how some people think monotheism is like a thing back in ancient Israel, and it's like, then why are Patristics saying the gods are real? <laughs> yeah, you read like Clement of Alexandria, right? He's like, oh, by the way, we're going to be seated with the other gods. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. Like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what is up with hey, you, Clement? Hey, what? <laughs> what? What did you go wrong? <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, go wrong according to who, right? You know, so exactly. that's that's that, that's the point is that early Christians did not share our cosmology. Mm-hmm. They did not share our view of the world. They did not share our view of the gods. Yeah. So where does your Christology work with now this theosis and this replacing of the Sanhedrin by the Christians or replacing of the gods in the 70 or how how do you keep your Christology but also theosis allow for it, you know, in a sense? I don't know how, how much you can address that in this time we have left. Yeah, that, much. I think, man, we're at two hours. I mean, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a long anyway. conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. for the next podcast, I guess. Yeah, there we go. That's, that's what I'm trying to, you know, see because there's so much pushback because they're afraid of crossing a line. And yeah. it seems, as you said, the lines are blurred. Mm-hmm. The lines are blurred. The lines Even are in Psalm too, the lines yeah. are blurred. A telling, a telling passage that I use all the time, and I just, I could go get the page and footnote if you need it. But, but in Richard Bauckham's book on Jesus and the God of Israel, he makes a claim that, I think it's a chapter on the enthronement of Jesus in Revelation or something like that, where where Jesus enthronement in the heavens, like seated on God's throne, that no one, no figure in Second Temple Judaism, there's no sort of like, um, there's no sort of archetype like this that is at the height <laughs> of exaltation or enthronement as Jesus. Footnote, something akin to that. Footnote, and then down the footnote, he's like. And here, these ex, um, exceptions that prove the rule. And I'm like, that statement <laughs> is the weirdest statement ever. Exceptions <laughs> to prove the rule. <laughs> Mind you, we only have like probably less than 1% of the traditions that existed in that period. Uh-huh. <laughs> and among those texts, we have multiple examples of humans being divinized Multi- that are from Jews. That aren't from pagans. Jews are writing this stuff. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. And that's my problem. That's the conundrum. I'm reading that, and I'm like, how can you say what you're saying then? Because I see this, and then I get pushed back, and I'm like, but the texts say this. There's a text called the Exegoge of Ezekiel that dates back to around the first century, first, second century CE. And it was, it was, a, it was pre- presumably a Jewish, like, Greek play of sorts, where it was like the, play, uh, the sort of, it's very poetic and rhythmic, and it was like probably acted out. Um, and in this text, it, uh, it's preserved in Origen, actually. Hmm. Um, Origen preserved this. Uh, the text talks about Moses in his ascent of Sinai, how it interprets that is Moses gets a vision or a dream that he's telling Jethro, and he's telling him that he ascends this cosmic mountain, this huge mountain, like, and it's, you know, it's the cosmic mountain where God meets, basically, that where it lives. And he sees the big throne. I mean, it's like, you know, as big as the heavens, you know? And, he's, and it's the, there's the ruler sitting on it with the, the, his crown and scepter. He gets up off the throne... And gives Moses the crown and the scepter and tells him to sit down on the throne. And, and Moses sits on the throne, and literally, this only happens twice in the Hebrew Bible. He 
all the heavenly hosts are ushered before him, and he numbers them. He counts them all. And he says that all these heavenly hosts, who are immortal, by the way, he says they appear to him as mortals. <laughs> they all bow to him as if he's God, you know? So I'm like, I don't know how clear we need to get to say, hey, guys, there were some Jews that were totally cool with deification. But, well, not to mention that he, that he actually called a census. <laughs> yeah. Well, and see, so that's the interesting part about one of the many interesting parts about that text is that only God is the one who numbers all the heavenly hosts. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is in Psalm 148. This is in Isaiah 40 and 48. So those are the only passages you have this. Where God... Abraham, right? Yes, but this is my point. Yeah. So <laughs> thesis about it. So saying that you need to know those traditions to understand what's going on in Genesis 15. Because as Abraham's called out from the 70, he's not one that has the gods over them. He's asked... By the word of Yahweh, this figure, word of Yahweh, takes them out, you know, number the stars if you can number them, so shall your seed be. Number them if you can number them. So like, so the idea is it's a challenge, you know. In some later texts, they write it as an imperative, like he just does it. But the, but the only other time in the Hebrew Bible where anyone takes a census of the heavenly host is Yahweh himself. He knows all their numbers. He, he um, parades them before him, like as the celestial potentate, you know, parading his armies before him. And he knows all their census, their number. And yeah. David is even condemned for taking the census of Israel, the number of all the sons of God. He's condemned for doing that, you know. And then Chronicles clears it up, and it was like, well, it was Satan that made him do it. <laughs> like, oh, okay, Chronicles, thanks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that fascinates me. I mean, Jesus even takes to a personal level in the New Testament when he says that he knows the number of your hairs, right? So that's the same idea. Uh, uh, that, not the same idea. Well, <laughs> eh, similar. I mean, counting hairs is a little bit different than, um, than marshalling the heavenly armies. <laughs> well, but the idea, but yes, the idea of a census. The of yeah. Counting, yeah. Well, no, the reason why I'm picking on that, it's not personal. It's just yeah. that a lot of people interpret the counting of stars as just counting. Right. They're just like, oh, yeah, you can count a lot. That's how many seeds you're going to have. It's like, well, yeah, that's an obvious meaning, but but marshalling the heavenly host is something that only God does. Yes, it's more this command monarchy uh, language, right? Like, you you get in front of me so I can... uh... Yeah, and and, and the thing is, you got to remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about capital T, the patriarch of Israel. Yeah. We're talking about the father of all the nations, literally. Like, that's read prophetically, that they will inherit all the nations. Yeah. Right? So that, that's, that's, that's literal. So if you already think in your cosmology that those celestial beings that rule over them are marshaled only by the father of all who has rule and authority over them, who numbers them and takes the census... And you're telling this seed you pulled out from under the 70, and you said, now you number the heavenly host. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) if you can number them, so shall your seed be. Meaning, if you can be the heavenly marshal, so your seed will be. So it's like, whoa! So that's (laughs) that's how some early Jews read it. Mm -hmm. And 
like this is sort of the origin, one of the origins of early Christian deification tradition. It comes from these Jewish readings of the establishment of Israel and how they read those texts prophetically to speak about the future. So it's kind of, but yeah, and I see this with a few things, like it's both kind of a, a Christological typology, but it's also sort of an uh, anthropic typology of deification as well. Mm -hmm. And it can be yes, read kind of both ways. Well, they're one and the same for them. I mean, yeah. they're, 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 I mean, for them, the Christ is the human being, the perfect human being in the image of God and giving us a vision of like, what does deification look like? Well, just look what happened to him. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah, that's that's the idea. And going back to a comment you said earlier, then uh, if we're going to read Paul, should we look at these documents that are a couple hundred years away, or should we look at you know from the 21st century? So how much is Paul doing in everything that you've said today, from chapter six, chapter eight, you know, chapter ten, chapter twelve, chapter fifteen in Corinthians? How much of this is what Paul's really talking about? Versus what we've done it as Protestants, you know. Yeah. So, well, know, yeah, how much I mean, is Paul just, speaking to this? This is just eye-opening to anyone in a Christian tradition who grew up reading the Bible and grew up studying the Bible or being preached at or whatever, going to Bible studies, which rarely is about the Bible. But, <laughs> right. but you know, uh, that you know that when you hear this stuff, it's jostling. It's like, no, this can't be right. Like, what the heck, you know? Because you've never heard it before. Not because it's something sort of idiosyncratic or that some secret knowledge or some weird esoteric stuff. No, just anyone who studies this stuff historically knows it. Yeah. So it's it's like you, it's just a, a method or approach, a historical critical approach to these texts. And then once you get in that world and you sort of get past the initial like, oh my gosh, this is everywhere. Oh my gosh, I missed all this stuff. It's <laughs> mind-blowing. Yeah. And then you have to get into parsing everything. And that's where it gets really complicated. And I, I, uh, I think that's, there, there's, there's, little, there's little hints of that. that I, I actually got a lot of personal pushback on, like when Paul talks about how we become partakers of the divine nature and and I got a lot of pushback on that stuff, and I was like, "But it, I, I really think he's trying to tell us something here." <laughs> yeah, that's actually Second Peter. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. Theo's gotten some pushback too with uh, some of the. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 really hard here because where I'm at, there's 330 million gods, and then you, talk, <laughs> you teach you teach Heiser's you know stuff. And then you kind of dabble into this, and then they're like, it freaks them out. You know, I, I've said it often, and maybe it's bears repeating, but, you know, when, when you talk to someone, and they were Hindu, and they become Christian, and they're in the East, like you said, the East is where the good stuff's at. <laughs> and then, you know, these Christians, <laughs> these, these Christians have this Western Christianity, you know. And they've been given it by missionaries, Western missionaries. So I'm a missionary scholar trying to fix their mess. But, but you know, a former Hindu is going to look at the Hindus and say, you're Satan. I'm like, is that really what you want to do here? You know, wouldn't it be better to talk about, you know, the gods and deification and explaining who we are in Christ and, again, trying to, you know, manage that Christology, but then explain that as a better... I, I hate to use the word evangelical, but it's a better way of comparative theology to talk to Hindus and, and, and Buddhists, uh, you know, who have this other view from the East 
and use Eastern Christianity to to kind of have a better chance to argue against 330 million gods and why Yahweh's better, you know, yeah. as opposed to just saying there's Satan like the Western teachers and there's monotheism and it's just a mess. It's well, let me let me just say let me be very clear that I am operating in the context of this podcast and in the context of my academics as a historian. So I am not operating as a theologian right now, so I do not want to begin to tell you <laughs> what to con- believe in contemporary space and theology yeah. as a missionary in the fall. Yeah. So I don't feel qualified to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's oh, yeah. a huge, that's a, that's I, I a huge basket. I approach the text the same way you do as a historian and the text as it's given, and then I want to pass it on to the theologians, the, the systematics or whatever to do. But let's get the text as Paul meant it first, and let's understand that, and then do your theology, okay? But let's get it as it was, and I think you have a better chance of, you know. That's, 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 that, that is a very Protestant method, and Protestants do that, and that's fine. I mean, uh, but I, again, want to speak, uh, I want to portray a historical critical approach to these texts in the service of those who are interested in that, yeah. you know? So for whatever reason, yeah. you know, if they're a theologian, if they're an atheist and just want to learn about how did Christianity start, you know, I want to appeal to uh, to a broad audience there. So I don't want to, in my scholarship and in my academics, I don't want to be like, hey, Christians, here's what you should believe about Paul, please, scriptively. Um, that's not what I'm saying, you know, because I disagree well, with Paul. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you, yeah, but you, yeah, exactly. What you said earlier, you are still, though, to me, being more faithful to the text in Paul and Luke yeah. than they are well, when they're trying to say, yeah. it, you know. So you're being well, more faithful to the text than yeah. me, it, in my opinion. You of historical critical method. Yeah. 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 So that's what I'm getting at. Trying to be more faithful to the text, and then whatever you want to do. It tonight, and, and I, I'll, I'll even say that uh, even me, because because I come from the Catholic viewpoint, I find yeah. great I find great value in the historical value of where Paul's coming from, his worldview, the worldview he's teaching in, and how he's uh, taking those messages into that Greco-Roman Hellenistic worldview, coming from his his ancient. Um, uh, is Judaism because that's what he was. He was he was a staunch Jew. So, well, let me let me clarify something there. Yeah. Um, that that's sort of an old way of thinking about the problem. I mean, that, that Paul is not Jewish over and against Hellenism. So Paul is a Hellenist. Yes, all Jews in this period are Hellenists. Yeah. In the same way that all Christians in America are American. Yeah. So, like, it, that he is a Hellenist, thoroughgoing. Oh, through, yeah. Definitely. So, uh, you know, the, Martin Hingle has a very important work on this, on Judaism and Hellenism, on, on, and there's lots of great scholarship on beyond the Jewish-Hellenism divide, you know, that uh, Paul beyond the Jewish-Hellenism divide, I think it's edited by Innsbruck Peterson, very good collection of essays, but um, saying that when we talk about Paul, we're not talking about this Jew versus the Greeks, because no, 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 no. even when you're polemicizing in Greeks, you're still doing it in Greek. Yeah. And you're still yeah. sharing a lot of their same cosmology and their own <laughs> language. And so it's like, 
you know, it's like it's like brothers and sisters fighting with each other. You know, um, they still have the same dad, kind of, in the sense yeah. that they still have a similar worldview and language. Yeah. So, you know, the irony of when you read Maccabees, if you ever read the oh Bible, yeah, <laughs> Greek Jewish texts that probably do not have a Hebrew origin, right? Perhaps. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why some later rabbis say they don't want that stuff in the canon is because it was Greeks and that's what Christians used, but uh, they didn't have Hebrew text for them. So <laughs> these Maccabees texts are saying, you know, these filthy Hellenist Hellenizers, uh, idol worshiping Hellenizers who uh, try to like put put like fake foreskins on. And, <laughs> <laughs> the gymnasium, because the gymnasium, the Greek gymnasiums in the city is where you like you work out, where you have instruction. You know, you're like taking part in the life of the polis, and it's males only because they are patriarchal a- assholes. But um, but uh, the, the, you know, you go in and excuse my French. I'm sorry. I say <laughs> it's <that>. okay. <laughs> uh, uh, but so so they go in and they would like try to fake like they're not circumcised or something, you know, <laughs> and try to be one of the Hellenists because they're walking around naked in the gymnasium. Yeah. And so like there's all and Maccabees are like those filthy, you know, breaking the law of Moses, you know, going forsaking the covenant because you have the martyrs who are literally they won't even eat pork in their martyrs. <laughs> so so you know th- this is real, you know, for some Jews this is like. You have literally abandoned Moses. You've abandoned our identity. This is horrible. But they're writing it all in Greek. Yeah. And they're speaking Greek. And they're yep. using Greek tropes. Yep. And they're using Greek rhetorical strategies. Yep. And they're using Greek narrative strategies. I mean, <laughs> so the irony is just kind of interesting. Well, and, you know? and, 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 like, I, and I don't mean that, that he is he's against the Greek side, but I mean, he has to be able to retranslate who the Messiah is coming from a Jewish worldview into oh, sure, sure, the sure. Greco-Roman worldview. Yeah. So, yeah. When it comes, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. When it comes to the, the 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 way I like to say it is, he's speaking within a Greek philosophical and scientific register. He's and he's tra- what he's translating into that register is his Jewish apocalyptic narrative, right? About the coming mediatorial redeemer who will destroy all the pagan gods and and redeem israel and all those who bow to israel's god you know so in messiah which fascinates me yeah (laughs) i think it's an eye opener maybe oh go ahead i feel like you were trying to say something keith oh i I was just communicating my jaw drop at the floor with the fake foreskin thing (laughs) Uh, oh yeah (laughs) They have surgery well, for that. Talking about Jews, it's all about the foreskin. <laughs> they had some surgery, I think. Right? They had surgery to get it kind of. They did. Something the I, the, I the reason something. you have a New Testament is a lot of it has to do with foreskin. <laughs> you have a lot of letters written to people who really, really want the snip, snip, and Paul's telling them, if you do the snip, snip, you'll be snip, snip off of Christ. <laughs> 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 literally, that's literally Galatians. <laughs> I literally yeah. just summarized the entire book of Galatians. <laughs> good job, too. One sentence. <laughs> one sentence. You did a good job. You did, you did that's job. literally what he says. <laughs> it <laughs> is. You cut the whole cut thing off. off. Just cut it, it all off. off of, from Christ. It's a play on words in the Greek. Like he's intentionally, yeah. like you get the little cut off, you'll be cut off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 
That might be the best summarization ever. (laughs) (laughs) The book of Galatians in five seconds. (laughs) That guy cut me off. Another thing to touch on is you are you are talking about the the Greek arguments or talking about the the various levels of glory or divinity, and then you mentioned like how some groups are like insisting on this embodiment as opposed to non embodiment. I find this interesting. This is very seems very echoed in like a lot of the early fathers. At some point, they kind of insist that the the angelic host is embodied at least to some degree. Mm. And then you get to like... They disagree on that. You disagree? No, uh, the patristics disagree on that. Oh, yeah, they well... Don't, <laughs> they don't agree with each other on that. Origin so, thinks the soul is like an orb. Like oh, this, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the body's bad. Like, Origin's 100% phylonic. And so are all the Alexandrians. They're all like Platonists. Yeah, so. yeah, you have a point. So yeah, there's that disagreement yeah. going on yeah, with them as well. Agree. And then you have like, finally you have sort of Aquinas who seems to be drawing from that like pseudo Dionysian uh, stuff. And so this is kind of an ongoing discussion with us, like what's the what's the embodiment of the angelic host sort of thing. Well, that's that's super complicated. Because <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of years of disagreement. That's a. <laughs> That's it's a future episode. Find <laughs> a doctoral seminar seminar on the Greek East and Latin West with Marcus Pleston, um, a world leading expert on this issue um, of the early split from the Eastern Church from the West, uh, Constantinople and Rome, and, and uh, he he his his famous work is on Pleston's famous work is on the reception of Aquinas in the East, um, and uh, he he's he tries to argue that. And, and I think succeeds, but though I'm, I don't know much about this period, I was w- in way over my head in this course. But um, but he he was arguing that a lot of even maybe even some of Augustine has made its way into Eastern thought too, where mm-hmm. you have Eastern thinkers that are using Western tropes and Aquinas and Aquinas uh, ideas in the East, and same in the West too. You have some overlap with like. Eastern views of theosis and unity and Eastern conceptions of the Trinitarian controversy and all that. Oh, yeah. the, the, so they like cross pollinate. Um, all, all that to say, um, I did a paper on the reception of Paul in the pseudo Dionysian tradition and that being the source of, uh, um, uh, what's his name? The famous, uh, Essence and Energies guy. Um, uh, Palamas? Pal- yeah, Palamas. Yeah, that being the source of the Palamas uh, debate. You know, so yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I, I like that. But that's on this. That's we're way out of the dump. <laughs> <laughs> we have at least two more podcasts to do now. Right. <laughs> no, you have two podcasts already. I've been with y'all for two and a half. <laughs> right. <laughs> what the next two are now? Yeah. Well, I I don't want to. I don't want to take too much more away from David because he's been with us for a long time tonight. I looked, I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's nine thirty. <laughs> right? So, so I'm no, gonna... but this is a blast. I mean, I didn't have anything planned after it, so it's like this has been fun. Oh man, <laughs> I, I enjoyed every second of it. Beautiful. <laughs> Definitely. So, but is there anything else? Any other questions or anything? 
that aren't dissertation topics? Uh, uh, so, uh, quick question. What superpowers do we get in the resurrection body? <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever Jewish apocalypticists believe the gods could do. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Very circumspect answer. All right. Let's go around it. Well, I'm not one of them, so I don't <laughs> a full catena of answers to that question. <laughs> Let's go around and collect final thoughts. Ready? Zechariah, last thoughts. I mean, this was a a fun interview. A lot of a lot of ground covered. We we've gone all over the place, but they were all good places. And uh, yeah, I hope our <laughs> I hope our listeners enjoy. Uh, maybe we even topped uh, the uh, the famous uh, resurrection and death of the gods episode there, <laughs> right. just with everything we've done here. Uh, Theo, any thoughts? I just found it refreshing, uh, and I hope the listeners can uh, appreciate a comment without going, you know, crazy. That 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 Burnett could say something like Dave could say, "I disagree with Paul," you know. And that that to me is refreshing. Right. I mean, it might be tough for them to handle that he disagrees with Wright, N.T. Wright, you know, <laughs> to say, "I disagree with Paul," or that Luke disagrees with Paul, or that there's different ways to accept the text as it's historically given to us, and I find that phenomenally refreshing. So I, I, I'm excited to be able to understand that, that um, the Holy Spirit does use all of us in different ways, but, uh, you know, we don't have to necessarily take everything, like, you know, uh, just to defend David here real quick, you know, like Heiser's view of, of the uh, hair covering in 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul might be thinking there. Uh, we obviously don't agree with that. Okay, we don't have to. So you don't have to agree with everything that Paul is, is doing because Paul is not omniscient. Okay, just because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, he's a great person, one of the greatest Christians. But just respect that so that you understand that, that everything that Paul says, it's okay to disagree with someone. It's okay to disagree with Hurtado or Fletcher Louis or, or whatever, you know. <laughs> but to dig in yourself to these texts and try to remain faithful to the text and be willing to go back to those things like Life of Adam and Eve and texts that are really close to help understand these things better than we would to go to some other sources, our favorite go-to in our own tradition. So thank you, David. Uh, it was very refreshing to hear these things, but that's the one thing I'm, I'm taking away the most today. So thank you. Awesome. Keith? Yeah, kind of, kind of piggybacking off of that. I think rather than detracting from, you know, religious beliefs, you know, if you're invested, you know, in Christianity as a believer, I feel like learning, you know, the historical place, you know, learning some of the, the mess of the different personalities and their motivations and how they might have been interacting with the people and not just what they wrote down, I feel like it enhances it. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a credit for, for my faith. Like, I, I don't feel like it detracts from it at all, and I'm really grateful. And it, it also mixes really well with vodka. Yeah. <laughs> Gumby? 
Uh, you guys cover the Bible. I'll cover the brews. The brews were good. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd I'd like to I, I'd like to to reach out to all of our listeners out there. If anybody would like to reach uh, reach out to uh, David, I know that uh, he doesn't have stipends and stuff, and he's open for donations because he's doing awesome research. David, is there a way that they can reach out to you for donations? Yeah, sure. Just uh, you can email me at david dot burnett at marquette dot edu. Um, that's David uh, dot B U R N E T T at Marquette.edu. Yeah, and help help David with uh, his phenomenal research, his ongoing papers, his ongoing education, and the way he reaches out and helps everybody become deeper in their faith and all of his students as well. So I, I'd really I'd really challenge uh, our listenership to to help him with that this year, especially with the difficulties we're having. So. Um, I fully appreciate everything that he's added to this podcast tonight. Um, please uh, reach out to us at any of the social media uh, branches, uh, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. Um, we're on it. Just Google us. <laughs> David, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you.